This is Mouth Media Network, audio for business. Hi, my name is Amira Rasul. I am the founder and CEO of The Folklore. We're an e-commerce platform that sells luxury designer fashion and lifestyle brands from Africa to global customers. And what I love about fashion tech is that it provides access to people who previously did not have access to the global market. From New York City, you're listening to Fashion Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the fashion industry. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Fashion Is Your Business. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Rako, and I'm very happy to say hello to uh, my co-host, Bovin Ball. Hey, you. What's up, Mark? I called you my co-host. That's not true. We're just (laughs) co-hosts. Mark, Mark, I'll be your co-pilot all day, man. Don't worry about it. All right. Thank you, man. Hey, I compliment my way this time. We're changing it It up, man. It doesn't happen often. Yeah, just it's it's Monday. (laughs) I'm feeling good. I had a relaxing weekend. There you, you know. go. Awesome. Glad for you. Glad for you. Uh, I'm I'm excited about this episode, uh, Pavin, because uh, we're uh, we're getting to talk to someone whose business has gotten known both in pop culture and for its incredible journey. Um, it is uh, it is just such a great purpose in this business, and we we don't. In all honesty, a lot of what the conversations we have on the show, I think, are are not about these kinds of businesses, but they are instead uh, about the the things that make the engines go for these businesses. And I'm, I'm really glad we get the chance to talk to someone who's got just such purpose and vision behind their business. So let's welcome Amira to the show. Amira, welcome. We're so happy to have you here. It's really, it's really great to talk to someone with such vision and, uh, and, and quality of leadership. Uh, so glad to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. I, I I am so excited to ask you this question, which I've asked other leaders and executives in the past, but it really feels meaningful to you. When you uh, first started the folklore a few years ago, how do you think, if at all, your vision and mission at that time may have changed over the last few years compared to how you see it now? So I think when I first started the folklore, I don't know if it's changed much. You know, Uh I think that, you know, when I first started the folklore, that my vision was to be able to economically empower brands in Africa um, and also brands of the diaspora by providing a way for them to directly reach international customers. You know, at the time they were receiving a lot of press from like, you know, the Vogue's and the L magazines and people were, editors were starting to fly out to Lagos fashion design week and paying attention to these designers. And you'd see articles about them, but you would not see a link on how to shop them. So you'd go to their Instagram and there's some, some designers would have an e-commerce site, but others would just have their email there and say, you know, send me an email or DM me and we'll figure it out that way. And so I just, felt that with all of the press that they were receiving, the fact that leaders in the fashion industry did not actually take into consideration what they can 
like what how they'll be able to like um connect with readers beyond that like surface level here's some beautiful visuals to me i felt it was a little bit uh exploitative because you have magazines who are posting these amazing images from these designers they get clicks from this but the designers have no way to actually cash in on it because they either don't have a d2c uh, e-com site of their own or they're not being stocked by retailers so my main mission was okay everyone can write about them and everyone can create a new magazine and a new platform to you know feature them and to get them seen but who's going to make sure that they can actually turn this into sales and so that's been the mission from the beginning how you know i can empower these designers to sell more and then be able to grow their businesses through, you know, um, being able to produce more, being able to employ more people, you know, really making sure that we can increase the exports out of Africa um, and then doing it in a way that is authentic and allows for storytelling and allows for these brands um, to be able to directly communicate with their customers. Uh, and that's through the po- things like the podcast that we do, things like the blog that we do. Uh, the Q&As that we do with these designers. So really, you know, um, giving them the opportunities that they need to empower themselves um, rather than just, you know, doing it ourselves and being that like source of, oh, come and see them and buy them. But no, you can actually connect with them. You can actually learn about them. Yeah, I want to comment on one. I mean, look, you're spot on in in terms of, you know, the original vision um, to see it kind of unfold in your digital footprint uh, against all the community initiatives that you do uh, really, really nicely done. Uh, But what I would like to say is, you know, our a lot of what we talk about naturally being a fashion tech or, you know, retail technology uh, podcast is uh, the sensitivity around conversion. Right. So, um, you know, our audience knows that, you know, just the smallest shifts in how you even place buttons and colors make a difference on the consumer um, taking an intent into conversion. So when you go onto a a website of a designer from, let's say, a Vogue or L or, you know, a major uh, and there's no way to capitalize on that, you're right. I mean, you're at that point, the only one that is uh, gaining any tangible value of that publication is the publication itself exactly. or that article is the publication itself. Now, um, to, to take a step back, you, you actually started your career or you had a very um, in-depth career as a journalist, um, often writing for some of these publications that you had mentioned. Can you talk through a little bit of that experience and how that led you obviously to have that uh, hindsight to take, um, you know, to, to create this value? Yeah. All of my internships and in undergrad were in, fashion media. So I went to Rutgers undergrad. Uh, I was living in Brooklyn. So I was spending like three days out of the week at an internship and like two days a week at school. And so I had uh, started my first magazine internship at Women's Wear Daily. Then I went over to Mary Claire. Then I went to V Magazine. And then I went to The Fader. And um, I just, you know, really appreciated both sides of the publishing industry, both like creating the visuals, but also being able to um, contribute, you know, written words and being able to describe these, you know, beautiful designers or artists um, through that channel. And so I had actually switched my major at Rutgers from journalism to African-American studies and made my minor journalism just because 
I got really interested in learning about black people. I had not had that opportunity growing up where I grew up. You know, the amount of, I could probably count how many black writers we, you know, read it from elementary school to high school on like one hand. Um, and so really like being struck by, you know, um, the vastness of African-American and African people's culture and history and and artistic works. I really um, fell in love with the Harlem Renaissance and learning about all of like the County Cullens, Fire Magazine. And so seeing how they were able to organize that Renaissance, uh, that really inspired me. And I wanted to know like how I can use fashion to empower, you know, black people. And so that's when I actually took a trip to South Africa my senior year of college. And I that was my first time in Africa. I spent some time in Cape Town and Johannesburg. And I fell in love with all of the designers there, all of the brands. And I was like, okay, I need to find a way to live here. So um, I, when I went back, I, I started working at V Magazine full time before I even graduated uh, college. So my last semester at Rutgers, I was doing a full course load and working full time. So my professors just let me actually uh, do all my work on the weekends and I didn't have to go to class. So I'd be working at V from like mon on Monday to Friday. And then the weekends, I would do all of my schoolwork and turn it in. And, you know, I really enjoyed what I was doing at V because I got, it's because it's such an indie magazine. I got to like do cool interviews with people. Like I was the fashion coordinator. So I was doing mostly like the, the production stuff for fashion shoots and samples and all of that. But because I knew I wanted to write, I would just like ask them to like interview anyone. So like I interviewed like people like Sampha and like being able to um, talk to people, not even just in fashion, but like I was really into emerging like musicians, photographers, those types of people. And so I built up my writing credits while I was there and mostly focusing on writing about black people because that's something where I know a lot of black writers, especially in like the fashion space, they're like, oh, I don't like being pigeonholed and only writing mm -hmm. about black people. I do, because that's actually what I'm interested in. So it's like um, being able to do that and then being able to leverage those clips that I, that I, that I um, got while I was there. When I moved, when I decided to move to South Africa to start the folklore, you know, then I just said, hey, I'm a freelance writer now. I need to make some money while I'm out here doing this, um, I was doing a master's program at the University of Cape Town at the same time uh, in African studies. And so I just started, you know, sending out my previous V Magazine clips and some of the clips that I got while I was an intern at the Fader. And just people were like, okay, mm -hmm. cool, write for me. And I really approached it as, hey, I'm this American person who's in, who's living in South Africa right now. Um, I know I have access to these uh, these American publications, let me use this, um, my platform to be able to write about the people Very that cool. I'm interacting with. I love that. What did you learn about the culture there through that process that may have allowed you to succeed with the folklore? Because I think that, that one thing that a lot of people don't, don't take stock of is, is, you know, different cultures, particularly different countries uh there's just a different way of doing business there's a different way of thinking about artistry versus business there's a different way of you know uh even communication the process what do, what do you think you picked up through the the journalism that you did and the people you interacted with that may have 
giving you some clues about how to proceed thoughtfully in your business dealings? Yeah, I think the first thing I learned was that I don't know anything. You know, I think <laughs> Fair enough. I always tell people to go into, especially when you're going into someone else's country, you're going into, um, you know, this is this. You need to go in knowing that you don't know anything. Uh, you know what you know about, you know, where you're from and how business is done with, you know, where you're from. But you don't know anything about what's happening there, even if you, you know, have some speculation and all of that, you know, open your ears first and listen before you decide to, you know, uh, either pass judgment or like um, offer any advice. And so that was I really went into it like a sponge, just wanting to before I would even talk to any designer about the folklore. Um, part of the way that I got into a lot of these desi designers was they weren't interested in, you know, talking to this American girl who'd never created a business before, who's just like, oh, can can I stock you on my website? Um, I used to interview these brands and I would do like different interviews for different publications, but I wouldn't talk about the folklore at all until the article's like out and published, right? And so it's like, okay, cool. That was the business that we took care of. Now, you know, these are the things that I learned about your about your company. These are some of the things that my company is about to address. Can like we schedule a meeting for me to talk to you about it? So it was like during that process of me interviewing them, all I was doing was listening. And that was for the purpose of writing these articles. And then now I have these transcripts. I'm looking at them. I'm reviewing what this person said. And I'm seeing based off and I'm updating my business plan based off of the conversations that I'm having with these brands. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, it's incredible what parallels uh, Mark and I can draw from our experience in kind of audio storytelling uh, towards what you just mentioned there. So, I mean, it, it's incredible the value and the power of this tool of just conversation, right? And being just genuinely curious uh, and, and just like a participant and a, a forever learner, I guess, of the world. Um, and, and that's how we've approached our, our podcast work, you know, like, you know, our whole thing is audio for business, right? Telling the stories of your businesses and, and the way that we present it is really just through interviewing folks like yourselves that are really pushing the boundaries and, and kind of moving the business culture forward. So uh, it's incredible that uh, this is the first time I'm talking to someone that has taken a similar approach, uh, that used the microphone and used journalism to then start unfolding kind of what, like peeling back what the opportunity is and, and kind of... Um, driving those relationships. So for me, whenever I talk to young brands, whenever they say, what's a great strategy, I go community, straight up community, right? Um, but but to, to kind of, um, I think to, to reinforce Mark's question, I am curious, are there any specific ways in which, uh, you know, your experience there has helped you navigate uh, the right approach or an appropriate approach to move forward uh, with, um, with building the storytelling and the platform behind Folklore? Yeah, I think it's important for, it was important for me to be on the ground. You know, I am was born and raised in New Jersey. My parents are from New Jersey. Like we can't even trace, you know, our ancestry back to the continent. And so I knew that I was coming in from a space where it's like, I'm from the diaspora. Um, there have been people from the diaspora who have tried to do something similar before, Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest mistake that they made was that they didn't go and talk to the designers. And so 
sitting there and going into their studios and seeing the scale of their business. Like if there's two people versus if there's 50 people working from there. Um, also going into the stores that were there, that were the multi-brandy uh, stores that they had in Cape Town and that they had in Johannesburg and seeing and asking those people how they work with the brands currently and what things they're selling. So not even just the brands, but being around other people. So I always say, I don't know what it is about African studies majors, but we're like the flyest people on the planet. Um, And so like all of when I used to have, when I used to be doing my master's courses at UCT, like all of my friends were wearing the designers that I was talking to. So then there's also me doing that, that research from just asking my friends like, oh, what is that? What are those earrings or how, how long have they been around? Are they like a big brand? Um, So like my friend Shazay, she was, um, my master's program, like she always had on something really cool, like selfie or Lauren. Uh, So I think it was really important to not just see how the brands work, but to see how customers locally interact with that brand and to see how businesses locally interact with those brands. Have you taken a look at StoryDot yet? Every brand and every product has a story to tell. And you can't successfully sell that brand or product without telling the story. StoryDot delivers your story wherever you want it to be heard. You can meet your customers at each point in their journey, connecting the dots between your business and the consumer to enhance engagement, experience, and conversion. I encourage you to take a look at StoryDot at StoryDot.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-D-O-T dot com. We've shifted from hiding our culture to wearing our culture to the forefront. And and that and I'll say when I say we, I'll say culturally as Americans, because all of us come from somewhere. You know, that's just the reality of it. And um, beyond the nat- the true Native Americans. And, you know, for me, my family's from um, South Asia, from India. And, you know, traveling there as a kid every year, you know, you, you, you j- and, and of course, growing up in it here in America, I mean, you just appreciate the colors, the vibrancy and, you know, the, the art- artisanship that goes into making the garments there. Uh, that you see and and the way that people are rocking their clothes right so like even today you're you're seeing Kanye rock like a Nehru cut collar and all of a sudden everything's there Kurta pajamas are out both in in um you know in Africa as well as in South Asia and like you know you just see the um I would say the confidence in people now stepping outside of what we traditionally have known as fashion or daily fashion um, and taking it off of the runway and wearing it in the streets. And, and it's, it's become a badge of honor, at least for me to represent my culture as much as I can and support the people that are from, you know, that are trying to, to, to do good, right. To, to bring back, um, you know, some value and, you know, in pop culture, of course, the influence is just tremendous that waterfalls down. Um, but we've had, we've had, a very unique mix of circumstances that that relates specifically to black americans and american and and black folks around the world right you had covid hit um everybody was home paying attention to the news like crazy and then you had the black lives matter um movement 
uh, grow and sustain through the world. You had that. And then while that was happening, of course, that's going to inspire a ton of uh, incredible artists um, uh, to to now showcase. Um, and even taking a step back, you already had like you were at the Fader, right? I mean, the, the, the Fader is an in- incredible publication that does a great job of uh, of profiling a great diverse set of brands and uh but you have that across the board whether it's uh, it's complex and hype beast and hype bay and um you know you you have like the rise of streetwear becoming luxury and you have you know you have uh, verge as the head of lvmh you you had this stuff happening already right so the culture is bubbling to you know when when black lives matter hits now i'm wondering how now you are processing this whole kind of up and down roller coaster of COVID and then BLM and then, you know, just everything that's transpired in the last, let's say, century of a year that we've had. Yeah. So, I mean, COVID was hard uh, because who's buying $400, $500 dresses when they don't know when they can go outside again? So I know with COVID at the beginning, I was like, I might have to get a part-time job to keep this thing up. I was looking to do some like um, adjunct professor, you know, stuff. I was like, I mean, let me put this master's degree to like, how can I, what county college is hiring an African-American studies, you know, uh, lecturer. So, you know, I just knew that basically the companies that were going to actually remain here after COVID were going to be the ones that were successful. And so I was just prepared to be able to do whatever was possible because it wasn't just a matter of people weren't buying. It's we also couldn't get new product in because our designers couldn't produce. Is your model to hold stock? Yes, we hold stock. So Mm -hmm. we we actually have a fulfillment center in New Jersey. Uh, And so I was just like, okay, cool. Like moved like all of the product in with me. I cut like half of our expensive expenses and I was just like, all right, we just have to basically be super frugal and we'll make it out of it. And that's how that, that's, you know, so I was just kind of like, oh, this sucks. Can't really move forward. Can't really do anything. And then when George Floyd was murdered and there were so many protests in June and then all of a sudden, there were articles everywhere supporting black businesses. I was in every article. The folklore was in every major fashion magazine, wow. every article of black-owned fashion companies to support we were in. And we just saw this incredible boom of like sales, like 4x what we got the month before. Like <laughs> I was yeah. just sitting here watching my phone blow up on Shopify, like the Shopify notifications. And I was like, what's going on? And then people start sending me articles and I start like Googling and I have like folklore Google alerts. And I remember talking to one of my friends and being like, is this how white founders feel? Yeah, (laughs) it is. The answer is probably yes. (laughs) I was like, I've never felt this type of support before. There's some magazines that I'd been reaching out to to feature us that were putting us now in this, you know, um, these lists of companies that they love. And so um, I was very outspoken at the time because I felt like it was something where I have, I had already created this business for the purpose of being able to put on other black and African people. And so it was a matter of like, 
they're just catching up. Like we're doing this already. We're doing the work. Well, were you offended, appreciative, or both? That's. Um, I was just. I was thinking yeah. the same thing. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Amir, but I was really thinking mm-hmm. it's kind of like that. I ma- not to answer for you, but yeah. I imagine it's like yeah. awesome. I have a shot here to use that megaphone, yeah. and then part of you yeah. feels like. F you, mm-hmm. it's like you weren't been interested in the story yesterday yeah. now yeah. because it serves what you believe your interests are. Yeah. And you know, you're doing the popular thing or whatever. You're you're suddenly interested in my story. So my job is to get the story across, but it feels wrong in a way, but it feels right in a way. So so I'm I'm sorry, I don't mean to answer mm-hmm. for you. I'm just saying that I totally get Puvin's question here. Yeah. I wasn't thankful. You know, this is what they should have been doing already. So I wasn't going to thank them for doing what they should have already been doing. Um, I was appreciative. I guess we could say that I appreciated what they were doing, but I was not thankful if that makes any sense. Like it was like, okay, cool. Appreciate the support. But like, well, I say, I'm going to say thank you because you said it, you did something nice. Yeah. Um, But it's, I guess how do I I want to read that. There's a difference between thanking someone for being awesome and th- and thanking them for the lane that they provided you. Yeah, so that's 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 I think what would yeah, I would say thank you because it was a kind gesture, but it's still not enough. So that's what that's how I thought about it. Like yes, featuring us right now is cool, but I need more than that. If you say mm-hmm. that you want to support us now, let's talk about how we're going to do that over an extended period of time. So everyone who would reach out, who would reach out any people who want to partner or, you know, magazines that we, we actually started putting together like calls with them and Good. seeing how we can actually make sure that we're consistently being like working with these ma- magazines or working with these companies. I'd like to believe that most companies that have made pledges and when I say pledges, I mean statements, yeah. not not actual pledges, uh, but uh, that have gone through and made you know um, strides to better themselves, to educate, and to to provide value, uh, however that means, whatever that means. Like you know, I, I uh, we subscribe to Bon Appetit magazine at home, my wife and I. So um, you know, uh, before they they had their huge shakeup recently, and they kind of like you know rid of the whole e board there, and you know brought in new editors and. All this stuff. It, it feels when I read Bon Appetit over the last few months, it seems so inauthentic because they've gone like over the top. Like everything's like from either you know uh, someone from uh, like a Latinx chef or or an Indian or a, or an African or like it's it's so overwhelmingly obvious to shift. And I don't know, I don't know how to feel about that. You know, like they even have. You know, when when someone says a green chutney over here, they're even saying like, you know, our native words for green chutney and things like that inside. And it's just like, all right, dude, like I get it. You're making a pivot, but like it's kind of like, ugh. <laughs> but anyway, I don't know. I, I, it's what a weird time. I mean, look, a lot of articles have been coming out in terms of actually now holding these brands accountable, let's say eight months later and saying, OK, who who actually did the work? Right. Who, who put in the work uh, versus. Um, saying stuff for fodder and um, how, what's your experience been over there? Like how, um, how have you been satisfied overall with your partners that have kind of like, you know, initially started, uh, started the conversation with you? Yeah. I mean, even with the Farfetch deal, 
we actually started talking to Farfetch before all of this started happening. So I met the president of Farfetch mm-hmm. North America in February um, of 2020. And so we started having those conversations then. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I liked about Farfetch is like we were talking and planning before, you know, and so seeing how they've supported us has been really great. Um, and then even the people that have come in, you know, afterwards, um, they've really, they've really like held, we, I've held them to the, their words, you know, like, because uh, there's a Jay-Z line that says like, I'm overcharging people for what they did to the cold crush, basically like what the industry did to the mm-hmm. cold crush brothers mm-hmm. by, you know, all of the shady music label deals that used to go on. And I feel the same way about this situation um, where you know that small black owned businesses don't have the same resources. And so if you actually want to be able to work with black companies, you have to meet them where they are. You can't expect them to meet your standards because your standards are the reason why they're being alienated. So you're Mm. the your business model and the ex- putting all of these expenses on people and doing things like that, that you're, you're contributing to the problem. You have to completely shift your model if you want to open it up to people who don't look like the average person that is on your site. And so see, that's something that I've really been vocal about. And, you know, they'll say, okay, we want to charge you 40%, 50%. And I'll cut it in half. Mm. And, I'm say, and I'm saying not only am I doing that because based off of what we can afford, um, but also based off of the fact that it's like we know how much value we're bringing to you now. We know that, Great. you know, to say that you're working with the folklore or one of these other really, you know, cool black owned businesses, you we're providing social capital now um, in addition to, you know, economic capital. And so being able to charge based off of that as well uh, and us understanding our value has been really great. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of how how I'm looking at it now. And a lot and a lot of people have been, you know, willing to accommodate that because they do recognize the value now um, and they see it not only as a opportunity to make money, but as a good marketing and social opportunity. Amir, can you talk about um, how a deal like that comes together? Like, how how do you and Farfetch, for example, end up connecting? Uh, can you talk about a typical journey like that as you've experienced it? Um, yeah. So I met Jeffrey Fowler, uh, the president of Farfetch North America, at this Dream Assembly event. They actually held held it. At Na- is it Nasdaq? Yeah, I think they held it um, there, and he was just talking about. It was like a a bunch of um, fashion tech founders, and he spoke to us. It was like a full day of different speakers from the company and other companies. And I raised my hand and I asked him what he was doing to increase the number of African and Black-owned designers on the website and how my company, The Folklore, can help. And he, you know... He mentions he mentioned like some of the designers he had on there. I didn't really know who they were, and I was like, "All right, like, can we like talk afterwards?" And so, I took we we spoke for you know about like fifteen minutes after that, and I was like, "Look, we can help you. Like, we have these designers, we have the stock, we can be the partner, we can be the, the mm-hmm. plug." And um, so he 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 gave me his email, and I emailed him, and he connected me with the team 
we started having conversations, but this is right at the beginning of COVID. Mm-hmm. And so uh, conversations moved a little bit slower. And then around, I want to say a little bit before June, we started like finalizing things and how it would work and what it would look like. Wow. That's pretty fast. That's incredible. Now, yeah. now actually, that, that, uh, that's a great story. That's a great story of, uh, you know, yeah. being in the right place, may, taking advantage of the networking and learning opportunity, taking action, advocating for yourself. And being ready and for following it. following that through. Yeah. All of it. Oh, it, it, the timing came came through with the moment. That That is awesome. Look, uh, Beyonce, first of all, won. Uh, she cleaned up. She made history yesterday at the Grammys. I remember exactly where I was when I watched her video earlier this year uh, or earlier last year, let's say. Um, I think it was from the Blackest King album called Already. Uh, it was the one um, Major Lazer produced. It was, um, I want to say it was filmed in Africa. I'm not sure, but the uh, but the the styling was just so uniquely bold and African and beautiful. And I remember watching that, being like, "Yep, this is so damn spot on." And I can't believe other artists have not been approaching it this way and so audacious in like their their representation. Um, how does stuff? How does that sort of move uh, from, of course, Beyonce uh, or any artist uh, affect what you're doing? And how do you kind of take? I, I don't want to say advantage, but how do you ride alongside? Um, something like that. Um, it has an amazing effect on our designers and our business. I think the thing that is preventing these designers from scaling is is the Beyonces and the Rihannas and you know those those top people. They need the, that validation because that's how you attach the value to a mm-hmm. brand, you know, like the Louis Vuitton, Gucci, all of these brands, they're not charging you $3,000 because it costs them right. 1500 to produce. It might've cost them $25 to produce that piece. The value is in the fact that you have rappers rapping about it. You have these top celebrities, top executives wearing them, shopping from them it's what the value we place on them. And it's all based off of what society values. And there hasn't been much value attached to Africa in general. And that's across the board. Mm -hmm. When you think about Africa, a lot of people always think about poverty and charity. And like people even come and ask me how they can donate to my company. Like how many companies based in New York do people go to and say, can I donate? It's, there's always this idea as soon as you hear Africa, of like, oh, like benevolence and like, how can we uh, give back in some way? But it's like, no, I we need to make sure that we have people, celebrities who are valuing these brands and saying, I love this. I'm paying $1,500 for this. I'm paying $2,000 mm-hmm. for this. Not just because, you know, these designs are really great, but because the story's really great, because these are actually handmade compared to like most of the luxury products that are out right now. Um, so it's really about being able to validate these brands um, because, you know, these 
these celebrities really dictate the culture and what people place value on um, and what people want to buy. You know, a, a marketplace business is not an easy business uh, to be in. Um, you've definitely carved out your niche, your storyboarding, like you, you've created a real strong ability to hit your base and then expand out from there. Then you tackle on the complexity of international business and what you're doing. So all of your designers happen to be uh, offshore. 80% of them. Yeah. yeah. So w- that is a complex business. Um, what What is it to you? Uh, what What have been the significant hurdles that you've had to overcome? And what are you most proud of in terms of uh, what you've been able to to accomplish at this point? Shipping. Shipping is incredibly expensive from Africa. And that was one of the problems that I wanted to solve for by creating the folklore. When, you know, I spoke previously about how some of the designers before the folklore had D2C e-commerce platforms of their own. But one thing that was preventing customers internationally from wanting to actually purchase from them is one, some of them didn't allow international customers. And then the ones that did, the shipping costs were so expensive. It could cost like $50 to ship one dress from Lagos to London. And if it's like something like a leather jacket, I know, you know, I was talking to a designer the other day and he said it costs like $150 to get that leather jacket to uh, from Lagos to Atlanta. Uh, And they, different shipping couriers, I'm assuming because there's not as many flights coming out of those countries. Mm -hmm. They've inflated the rates significantly in Africa. Yep. It costs you 2x, 3x what it would cost wow. to ship from like America to Europe. And that's something that we want to start having conversations with shipping couriers who are doing business in particularly the key cities that we source from um, Cape Town, Johannesburg, Lagos, uh, Accra. So that's been a really difficult um, thing to navigate. I know when I first started the folklore, I had very little money. And the way that I got our first stock of clothes to the U.S. is I was in Cape Town, went to each designer's studio, put that in my suitcase, flew to Johannesburg, grabbed everything from the Johannesburg designers, flew to Lagos, grabbed everything from the Lagos designers, and flew back to New York with three suitcases. And... That was because I did not have any money to do. The, oh, I to, saved thousands. You probably I saved, saved thousands. thousands of dollars. And I did all of that with like tickets that cost me like under $1,500. Um, and one of those shipments alone could have cost me 1500 And, you know, my back hurt afterwards. I might have lost a few things on the way. But, <laughs> you know, it saved a lot of money. It was Victorious. <laughs> yeah, it was the only thing I could do. And so... That's been a really um, hard thing to navigate, uh, and we're looking at different solutions for that and talking to different, you know, um, courier services to figure that out. Um, so I would say that's the hardest. Has it been in your thought roadmap about partnering with couriers, building your own courier service, being an investor in a courier service, having some more control over that situation so you're not just the simple victim of you know, of cost inflation or. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely want to create, we definitely want to create relationships with couriers that are already there. Um, So that's something that we're working on right now. 
But yeah, creating my own courier service. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> yeah, <fair laughs> That's a tricky business. Um, your your whole like brand lo- looks like a fashion magazine. It looks like yeah. a fashion and design magazine. It is. Yeah. It's it's incredible. Um, Wonder where she got that what, idea. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, what what do, what does your creative team look like? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if a lot of people know this because we had like six to seven different emails, like customer service and contact and press emails that we had when I originally started. But for the first 16 months of the company, I ran it by myself. Yeah. Um, and so we didn't, I didn't, the person that I brought on after about a year uh, was Raven. So she's our digital producer. So she's the one who, all of the images that you see on our website, she produced the shoots for those. Um, so she's been really great. Uh, and then on the creative side, we also have um, our new marketing strategist, Coinsola, who's been, you know, really uh, great about, you know, socials and emails and, you know, all of the great marketing stuff that we've been doing recently. And then we have our uh, editorial and copy editor, uh, Ronnie. And so uh, both Ronnie and, and Coinsola are ex Netaporter Ukes group. So they, yep. and they're based in the UK. Um, and so they, have a lot of the the sensibilities that I'm that I'm looking for, like when it comes to design and when it comes to how to communicate with the audience. Um, I, I look at a lot of UK based publications. Mm-hmm. You know, I've contributed to a few, like ID and the Face. Like I really like how they how they spotlight creatives. So yeah, no, that's our that's the creative side of our team. Very right cool. Now. Um, all right, so 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 get a little techie with me. Um, you know, you, you say on your on your LinkedIn profile or the profile for the company, that it's a tech stars company. So right off the rip, we know that um, you know you you went through through their program. It's quite obvious. Um, did you go through the 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 Minneapolis the the Target Accelerator or? No, we're, I'm actually currently going through TechStars Seattle. Okay, got it. Yeah, got it. Okay, so you're currently in their their program. How's that experience going um, in terms of in comparison to the stage of business that you're in? It's been amazing. It's it's drastically changed the direction of the business and me. I think the thing that has changed the most is how I lead, and I think that that's the most important part of the this journey. You know, without a good leader and a good leader who can identify great talent, you know, we're not going to be able to do what we need to do. Uh, and so, you know, it's also made me actually okay with using the title of being a tech founder. Mm. You know, as someone who does not who couldn't read a line of code or write a line of code and who has used Shopify for X amount of years now, I wasn't really comfortable with that uh, until I realized that, you know, it's, it's beyond just, can you code? It's, can you empower other people to build powerful technology that achieves the goals that your company, you know, is ultimately trying to reach? Yeah. It's, it's the orchestration of it all. It's really what comes together. You know, just to rip off a few of the names that we're connected with um, that are close to either the show or to myself personally, you know, Carla Wallace, uh, Rima Reddy, Carly Ann Fergus, uh, Jackie Treblecock, Isosa Johnson. I mean, these are folks that I revere in terms of, uh, you know, the amount of community building they do amongst the tech community here in New York um, and their positions in which they have currently that they're holding. Um What's been your journey inside of uh, these tech communities? Because you've clearly built, based on those names alone, you've clearly built yourself, um, you know, a, an advocate group uh, in this world. 
I mean, some of those people I probably was just LinkedIn stalking and messaging them. But Asosa, I actually, <laughs> Asosa, I actually know. Um, she's the founder of Black Women Talk Tech, yeah. and you know she's been she's been really great. I know that I went to Afro Tech the last time they held it in person about two years ago, or I guess a year and a half ago, and you know we spent you know half the day together, uh, just going to different um, to different talks, and you know she was telling me a lot about her business and, and what black women talk tech is all about. And so, you know, now I'm a member of that. Uh, having that community has been really great for me uh, because the experience of a black woman in tech, you know, varies drastically from other people. So uh, I really, I really appreciate like being able to connect with those people and women have been really instrumental in like fueling the success of the folklore, both as customers but also as mentors and and connectors. So connecting with other fat, not even just fashion people, but just tech people, um, mm-hmm. founders in general who are women, uh, they've provided so much insight. Yeah, Amira, we could um, we could put together a pretty good list. And for those folks that uh, I, I said that you you were just uh, stalking on LinkedIn, I can make those yeah. uh, those. <laughs> Those bridges a little bit stronger, for sure. Um, And and another person that comes to mind is a a co-host of this show that comes on uh, from time to time, Alex Batdorf. She she actually uh, had a couple exits in the retail e-commerce world, um, and then uh, she moved to New York here. We we became friendly, and uh, she has an accelerator for female entrepreneurs, um, and she is also a person of color. So um, she's a great person uh, for you to connect with. Awesome. I would love to. Yep, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, look, you you mentioned, of course, I, I clued in that you're part of, the, you know, you're platformed on Shopify. What other kind of priorities do you have when it comes to technology? Like, what are you looking at? How do you, uh, are you at a stage where you're looking to invest in new technologies, ideas, and things of that nature? Or are you looking for that platform and it's, uh, of course, a seemingly infinite scale uh, to to kind of help you navigate? Yeah, so we're definitely, uh, we have our software engineer, Fidelis, who's been working on a few things for us, uh, mostly just how to increase the user experience uh, and to make it, you know, um, as seamless as possible, but to also provide that, you know, um, VIP private client feel of people Mm. who want to go into the store and they want to have that, you know, white glove service of, you know, how does this fit, you know, can I see it in another color? Uh, can I do like people still want that physical store experience. And so we're trying to find different technology that will allow that. There's so many out there now. There's so many great fashion tech companies where you can plug in an app or, you know, um, so yeah, we really want to be able to increase that. People want to, feel like they're connected to the brand too. So outside of how can we make sure that they look good in the clothes, it's like, how can we make sure that they feel good knowing that, you know, that this was designed Mm -hmm. by this, this person using like this, like a hundred year old technique. Have you already deployed or thought about a pop-up like retail experience? Because I could see the, that's to your point, people, do like to touch and feel things. And as we kind of return um, to, let's say, life after COVID, uh, I, I just feel that a store that has the folklore, first of all, amazing name, 
Um, I, I, never, I didn't I didn't mention that earlier, but, you know, as kids, when you just read books, that's the fir- one of the first things you learn. Right. This is folklore and, you know, um, and the, the definition and the tradition. Uh, well, it just, it just makes you automatically understand there's a story there. Yeah, there are levels there. There's mm-hmm. a world there. Yeah, it, I love you know. it. I love it. It hits so hard. It's perfect. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, a store that's called the folklore and, and having, uh, you know, the rich, the rich cultural sensibilities that you have. And, you know, obviously taking that journalistic and design eye that, you know, that your team has built. It's I could see that being very compelling and very, very uplifting for the brand. Yeah, we've done physical pop-ups before, and they've been really great. We like to have experiences. We don't want to just have, yeah. hey, come and shop. You know, of we course. when we, we've collaborated with uh, the Museum of Contemporary African Diasporan Arts in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. Mokata for short. And we've done, you know, when Orange Culture wanted to show its AW20 collection, we presented that in New York in February at Mokata. We had, it was like a full weekend full of activities where we invited people to um, to a panel talk where it was, you know, me, Bio, the uh, creative director of Orange Culture. It was um, Nana Ya, one of the head designers at Jonathan Simkai. Then we had my friend Nana, who's an editor at The Cut. We had my friend AJ, who was like an ex, ex-GQ and who's like this amazing stylist. So being able to do that, where we talked about globalizing African brands and did, you know, a sold out panel from that. And then we also did the presentation for the actual show and we had Cabassier sponsor it. And so people got to see the items. And then plus we had the pop-up shop outside where people could actually shop the items. And so doing things like that, that are that's more than just oh yeah, come shop clothes, but we want you to be able to engage with our designers. You know, so much of what we do is about telling the stories of people that inspire these designers too. So architects, writers, musicians. So being able to create experiences um, rather than just physical shopping destinations is really important for us. And it's something that we hope to continue to do. I'm like super like serious about COVID. So I don't mm-hmm. want to even open up a store if I'm somebody who doesn't even feel comfortable going to store. So I don't go anywhere. Um, so I, I think I've probably been in like two stores. I, everything is target pickup, you know? Yeah. So man, they kill uh, it though. Oh, they're so great. It's just like <laughs> beep beep. And then they come and put it in my trunk and I love it. So yeah. I think we're going to definitely try to do a lot more of those in different cities, like our key cities, mm-hmm. New York, L.A., um, and really try to create those experiences. Like we want to have like artist talks or, you know, yeah. where we have somebody like, you know, um, where we have somebody like Carrie Mae, Carrie Mae Weems, if I think I'm saying her name right, um, like those people coming in. Maybe cut that. I don't know if I'm saying her name right. Um, so yeah, but artists like you know uh, coming in and talking and doing different collaborations. We definitely want to foster that type of thing. So, Mira, since storytelling is such a huge part of what you do, how do you make sure once you have captured, or I should say, acquired a customer, they've gone and they have bought that $500 dress, they have bought that leather jacket, they have engaged with your brand. And they'll be back, but they may not be back tomorrow. How do you keep that storytelling going and keep them within the world of folklore and and enthusiastically engaged with the magic of that universe? 
and that culture until the next time they feel like maybe it's time for me to get something else. It's the content. We are our emails. We are really thoughtful in our emails. We don't want to just send you an email that says, hey, here's some product. We're going to tell you about the brand, a, some, a, a story about a, the brand that we haven't told you before. Or we're going to tell you a story about how, you know, this particular piece was made. Uh, we're really leaning into more curate, uh, curated selections where we're telling you this is how you, this is for your picnic at, you know, Prospect Park, or this is for, you know, your vacation in the Bahamas. Uh, and we do that through email. We do that through our socials. We do that through our podcast. So we are creating a lifestyle brand where we want people to come to us when they want to learn about the next like hot African, West African chef or or interior designer, or when one of our designers drops a collection, they know that they can go on the blog right now and Orange Culture's Autumn Winter 21 collection that dropped last week is there. Um, and so we are just keeping them engaged through that content where they're waking up and they're listening to a new episode of our Our Folklore podcast on a Wednesday. And then they're going to go put on their dress from that they bought from the folklore uh, after they have just put on some moisturizer that they bought from our, you know, the new skincare that we've dropped. And then they're going to put on their earrings that they got from the folklore and then go sit ne- on their couch and next to them on their couch is like this cool vase that they also bought from the folklore. Uh, and then they're going to open up our blog and then they're going to read some articles from the folklore. Like we want to be, we have curated our selection so that it fits the lifestyle of so many different, you know, people, people who appreciate um, wearable art, people who appreciate something that's special that they're not, that they know 100 people around the world aren't going to be wearing um, and, and making it, you know, cohesive across like everything from fashion to beauty to to homewares. That same person is going to want to buy, you know, from each one of those categories. Ooh, it's a... That's a big, big task that you're doing. There's a lot, a lot of moving pieces there. Um, unbelievable. Really, really nicely done. Uh, where, where, where do you, I mean, it's like, that's not even the vision. That's what you're doing already. Like, where, where are you in terms of hitting that, that real acceleration in your mind? Does that just happen out of nowhere, are you ready for it? Are you planning for it? You came from, I went and brought home three suitcases uh, from from Cape Town uh, to building where what you have today with a three PL that's managing your inventory and your your distribution. Like, what are you preparing for next? What's the next milestone? Yeah. How big is the vision? Oh, the vision's very big. <laughs> yeah, I mean, clearly, clearly, from your last, from your last um, description, uh, the 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 vision is very big. The vision is even beyond D to C. D to C is just the start. D to C was the cheapest way to you know start creating this you know um, creating a supply chain, a better and stronger supply chain in Africa. Um, we are definitely going to do some B to B stuff. And we're definitely going to um, do a lot more stuff um, directly with brands outside of just um, retail. 
the to answer your question about you know what's the next milestone post Techstars, we're raising our first round of capital. And that's going to be, you know, this has been pretty much bootstrapped with us picking up like a few angel checks. And, you know, post Techstars, we're going to raise our first round from institutional investors. And that's going to be when we're able to like fully accelerate. Um, When we have some room to test and to, you know, um, strengthen our team. And then to really... um, throw some money behind all of these amazing marketing ideas that we have, that's when we're going to be able to really take off. And like people have seen the folklore, you know, so many places now and, you know, people love the w- the website we have now. And it's just like, wait till I actually, I mean, it's I, Kanye, even though he's problematic now, he made one of my favorite songs, which is um, about like, nah, 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 Wait till nah, I get my money, get right? My money, right? Like, I listen to that song so much because I'm just like, literally, I've done this with a shoestring budget and I've gotten to this point. Like, imagine what I can do with some money. Um, this is a company that, you know, I want to scale to be, you know, we're making a couple hundred million dollars in, in revenue every year. And it's very much possible because we are we're not reinventing the wheel here. We're doing something that companies like Net-A-Portier and Moda Operandi and and you know Matches Fashion, it's something that they've been doing, but what they've neglected to do is to actually source from these non-Western countries. So we're catering to the same market, we're providing the same level of service, and we're providing even more value because we have this content, we have these this storytelling vehicle that we use. And so we're essentially just going and sourcing those brands that they decided they did not see much value in. And now we have the ability to have 2000 brands on our platform that they just neglected to, you know, to, to work with. And we can then compete with them and it won't be as much competition. All of these brand, all of these retailers are competing for the same, the dollars from these same people and they all have the same Gucci dress across all six platforms. We're the company that will have the one of one of a designer dress. And that's going to be the thing that really helps us maintain our value in in the market as we grow. All right, uh, Amira, uh, we're going to pause for a moment. And when we're back, it's going to be time for a lightning round of off the grid questions right after this. Culture starts at the top, and great customer experience, the only competitive strategy in today's world, is fueled by great leadership. We hear and read this every day, but many brands don't drive customer-first strategy. For those at the top who want to make that leap but don't know how, we'll learn from leaders who share what you must do to become customer-centric. I am Liliana Petrova, and this is The One Thing. The One Thing, Customer Experience from the Top, is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever the best podcasts are found. And now, it's time for Questions Off the Grid, with Fashion Is Your Business. 
All right, Amira, this is where we get to know you as a human being. We spin the wheel of grid destiny to, uh, to figure out the order of the questions. So I'm going to spin the wheel. And the first question comes from me. Okay. All right, so Amira, the, the question I have is you, you mentioned Kanye West and you mentioned that, that, uh, that song. Um, what else have you found is part of your soundtrack of your working life? I listen to a lot of DMX. Wow. <laughs> that is so aggressive. I can't I even. He gets me like really hype. Um, and I then I listen to a lot of Jay-Z. Uh, and I listen to a lot of, yeah, I would say Jay-Z, DMX. And I listen to The Locks and mm. like Jada Kiss a lot. And Man, like you are New York. Back. You are heavy New York hip hop. Oh my god! Yes, I love it. So that's that's what gets me high. I love it too. Fun fact over here is that my first concert was Rough Riders DMX at the uh, the Coliseum in Nassau County. Oh, <laughs> what a time! I have a, I I have I a bandana from it. So <laughs> hold that <laughs> a Rough Riders bandana. My first concert was <laughs> Prince and the Purple Rain tour. Oh, damn, that's with a Sheila wow. E and the whole like the whole the whole big shebang. Right in its heyday. I'm Say a word. Guy. All right, another spin of the wheel. Wow, concert. So that's that shows what happened in my generation. <laughs> another spin of the wheel, and surprise, mm. it's popping. Uh, you know, Amir, I'm wondering. You know, when you went back, uh, or when you go back to Africa, let's say, like just through that that new cultural journey, you mentioned that your family's from New Jersey, you're from New Jersey, you can't really trace back your roots. Um, but, you know, I'm wondering what you learned about yourself from being around folks that look like you may talk like you may, you know, may may dress like you based on your aesthetic. And I, I'm just, what, what has that impact been on you? Yeah, I realized that black people around the world are like the same, <laughs> not the same in the sense of like, you know, we of course we have different like cultures and different heritage and dis different customs. But there's so many things that I um, witness that a mom in South Africa says to their child that I'm just like, wow, dude, does your mom know my mom? Because <laughs> this, is, this is really crazy. Um, and so that's always been great to see that, you know, um, so many things that we just thought was a part of black American culture was actually adopted from and, and passed down, you know, through oral folk tales, through, you know, um, visual folk tales that, you know, it's actually, um, something that's derives from the continent. So being able to see that has been has been really cool, and also the acceptance. You know, there's been like this, um, there's been this like stereotype that you know African people don't accept Black Americans and things like that. But just going there and feeling accepted and like everyone you know loving me and oh my African sister, you're back home. Like so many people just embracing me. That was really great to feel like wow, I have like a community. Uh, larger than the 13% in, in the U.S. Yeah, that's incredible. Awesome. What a great, great, great response. Thank you, Amira. Uh, how can people connect, obviously, with the brand and, and to whatever degree you want to invite people to connect with you or follow you directly? 
Yes. So you can follow The Folklore on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Folklore, T-H-E-F-O-L-K-L-O-R-E. And then you can also make sure to go to our website, uh, www.thefolklore.com, subscribe to our newsletter. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. And also you just get all this great content that I was talking about. And you can follow me personally uh, at Amira Rasul, A-M-I-R-A-R-A-S-O-O-L, on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, if you need to reach us at The Folklore, make sure to email us at contact at thefolklore.com. All right, Amir Rasul, what what a what a dynamic person you are and what a dynamic brand you've created. Congratulations on everything. So it's so inspirational on a number of levels. Uh, thank you for joining us and best of luck going forward with uh, the giant vision. Yeah, thank I, you so much. I, I love the business you built so far, the brand around it, and look forward to seeing where you take it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, that's it for this episode of Fashion Is Your Business. Thank you so much for joining us and for taking it all the way to the end here. Uh, uh, we'll see you next week for another wonderful guest and a great story. Until then, for Pub and Ball. Shake it easy, fam. I'm Mark Rako. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been Fashion Is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at fashionisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found.